This is Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Ries. It feels like years since the COVID-19 pandemic started, doesn't it? It has changed and evolved so much since I first got into the fight. It began as a public health phenomenon, but has now had far-reaching consequences to the economy, to our social infrastructure, and our civil society. Many of the problems that are just now coming to light are not really new. What's new is our growing and common awareness of the inequality, the injustice, the cracks in our system. The worrisome part is we are just beginning to see the depth of the second and third order consequences of the pandemic, and therefore the urgency and scale of the response that will be needed. But I do not think it is too late. We still have time to stop the bleeding and start building again. When I reflect back on the early days of the pandemic, one of the important organizing tools was a WhatsApp group. The goal of the group was to organize technology leaders and get us coordinated in our relief work. In that group was Roy Bahat, a venture capitalist with experience in the public sector, nonprofits, large legacy corporations, and as a founder himself. Roy and I were slated to speak at the COGEX conference this year. COGEX is a global summit of technology leaders in the UK that normally draws over 20,000 people, but obviously had to be done virtually this year. So Roy and I decided to use that time to reflect on everything that's happened since that initial WhatsApp group. We also discussed our common vision for the world we want to build on the other side. Roy was kind enough to ask me about LTSE, but we also spoke more broadly about the many institutions that need to be remade and how technology platforms and leaders can play their part. This is our first ever live recording of Out of the Crisis in front of a obviously virtual audience. It was recorded on June 9th, 2020. Here is my conversation with Roy Bahat at COGEX. It's a real pleasure to be here and to be in conversation with Roy. Um, Roy and I have been frequent collaborators over the years, uh, and he was an early Lean Startup supporter, has been doing tremendous work on the COVID response. And so, Roy, can we can we bring you in? Yeah. Is this how this works? I'm curious, by the way, why you decided to to like tell the story of this throughout of the crisis, which I realize I probably shouldn't start by just asking you you the question about why the podcast exists. But we can, we can start wherever you want. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. I listen. I never I never really wanted or thought that I would have a podcast, but um, it was it was actually a very strange phenomenon. You know, I don't. It seems like a hundred years have passed since the pandemic began. But in those early weeks, it was it was just nonstop. I mean, really, the stress of it, the the level of relief work that was going on. There were days where I was just on the phone from the moment I woke up to the moment that I put my kids to bed. And yet, as the crisis was unfolding and I was getting exposed to like darker and darker facts about the world, I realized that my mental health was actually getting better compared to the early days when I was just sitting on the couch feeling anxious all the time. And I realized that part of the reason is because of these incredible conversations I was having every day with extraordinary people who are trying to help people like you. And I thought all my friends and colleagues, everyone I know who's still on the couch feeling stressed, they would a benefit from hearing these conversations like help is on the way. There are good people. It's not just what you see on TV uh, making a difference. And secondly, I thought maybe they would take some inspiration and get off the couch and get in the fight. So yeah. uh, next thing you know, I had a podcast. 
a mental health exercise. I think I, I've certainly benefited from it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. No, and thanks. Thanks for your work. And maybe that would be a good place to to start because you know we've known each other for a long time, but I feel like we've we've grown a lot closer in the past however months it's been. And it, it started with a WhatsApp group, basically. Yeah. I think one of the great secrets of this whole response effort is how much of it, you know, has happened over private WhatsApp groups and why is that? I mean, um, the the story from my perspective is like many of us when the pandemic started thinking, well, what do I do here? And I think for I've noticed, and I don't know if you've seen this too, that for founders, you know, depending on their life experience, they tended to respond really differently. Like some saying like, oh, this will probably just blow over if they hadn't seen a crisis before or people had been through multiple recessions and it clicked into place. For me, the moment it most evoked was um, the moment after 9-11. And I was living in New York at the time and a little while later went to go work in the city government. And I remember two things out of it. One is just this feeling of um, intense need to do something. And um, the other was the memory of lots of people throwing themselves into things with a hero complex and thinking that they were doing things that ultimately just felt good to them, but really didn't matter. And, you know, I'm allergic to bullshit and did not want to find myself in that role where I was merely doing something to feel good. And so I kind of was reaching out, just groping for who else is doing something and how can I support them? And, you know, tried a few things here and there, proposed a call to some people they didn't want to do one. And eventually we landed on one and then several of these private WhatsApp groups where I think you remember it was sort of like a give get yeah. exchange in the beginning of folks in tech being like, well, I'm working on, you know, building some software where volunteers can sign up and you were, you know, everybody brought in somebody else and you said, well, such and such is doing this and et cetera. Um, and that to me, surprise, surprise ended up being a really effective way to collaborate and get to support folks like you, who I really feel like you have thrown yourself into this in your entirety. I see my role as more like I'm trying to do my day job to respond. And especially now with so many concerns over the justice of how our day jobs contribute to the broader issues in the U S and to some extent the world. Um, but you know, a little bit of lightweight air traffic control maybe felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, I thank you for it because it, it's interesting. And in, in now we're now in a series of compounding crises, one, one leading to the next, to the next. And, and we don't know how this is going to go. I will say for me, it, more than any of my lived experiences, it reminds me of the stuff my grandparents used to tell me. Oh, wow. Yeah, totally. Uh, about what those, do you mean when you say that? Yeah. Those horrible, horrible times. Yeah. And, you know, and I felt that way before the crisis. I remember the last last five years, especially of the boom, and the kind of crazy stuff that's been going on, and and people's kind of reckless abandon with which we have discarded historical protections, and um, you know, especially as people started, I'll get into all the politics of it, but just the, the the political and economic realities of this era. It just it reminds me of these stories that my grandparents used to tell me that I, I thought were so old fashioned. I was like, "This is America. Right. That can't happen. Nobody could be that callous here or that indifferent here. That could never happen." And yet, you know, we see it. We see it happening. And you know, obviously, I'm very much focused on the long term consequences of things because you know that's my day job is building the long term stock exchange. Yeah. But yeah, I really see things through that lens. I think it's a really important reminder, and I was sharing some things on Twitter about, you know, what I'd heard from my grandparents and in growing up, 
And at the same time, I feel right now, I'm going to try an idea on you in a second, but I feel right now more ignorant than I've ever felt. And, you know, here we are two white men talking to each other about a crisis that's been compounded by race. And I imagine that you also have thrown yourself back into learning mode to try to figure out how best to engage at this moment. And the idea I want to try out on you, you know, I also carry memories of things that my grandparents told me. I mean, lots of um, extended family who lost their lives in Poland and other parts of Europe during World War II. Um, That crisis, 9-11, other geopolitical events, um, those seem different to me from this moment in that in this moment, I think might be the first time and I hope I'm not just saying this out of being part of the tech industry where tech has to be part of the answer. And you could have gotten, you know, in part because there wasn't tech in the same way at other points in history, but even recent crises like um, natural disasters, it feels like the exchange of information, your podcast is one example of that, but, you know, social media for certain kinds of information, you know, marketplaces for personal protective equipment as another kind of information. I guess, you know, I want to try out on you the idea that does this feel to you like the first crisis where tech is a necessary part of the solution? For sure. One of the really surprising patterns in the out of the crisis conversations has been many of the projects, I mean, maybe even the majority of them had some kind of social media part of their founding story. And I'm not just talking about, you know, things like help with COVID, which are about volunteer matching. Um, I'm talking about therapeutics and uh, and vaccine discovery and like all kinds of hard science because like the scientific community is coordinating like never before. Um, the policy communities could be coordinating like never before and in some places are. And then you have all these kind of quasi nonprofit, quasi tech kind of founder type people trying to, to do good in the world. And so the coordination ability um, that, technology gives, you know, I I haven't heard anybody complaining about social media lately. Well, other than Facebook employees complaining about Zuck's treatment of Trump. Well, right. But that's like a totally like, so now, now we're talking about, okay, given that this is a reality and a necessary, think about these protests and how important it is, the ability to coordinate through social media, but then also to post the images. Totally. We were talking with our, our team internally about how, what we can do to be of service uh, in support of the cause. And you know, the, the shocking reality of this is for every injustice that gets captured by a cell phone camera on, and you see it on social media, what about the 45 others, you know, who were rendered unconscious in Minneapolis where there wasn't a camera nearby? And those are only the ones that got documented and reported. Well, how many more? So like you start to realize that this is giving us this little pinhole glimpse into the tip of the iceberg of the injustices that have been cracking through our society. And it's almost like if you look around the world, the societies with the pre-existing conditions are more vulnerable. Yeah. And so it, yeah. it revealed, the, the pandemic has revealed all these problems more than caused them. And I think that's been totally. a really thing because- The pandemic plus social media. Um, yeah, it brings that awareness. And that, that I think the reason tech has to be part of the solution is we have to kind of replay what the, the repairing of the civic fabric, the development of a new social contract that our grandparents went through but we have to take like we have exponential type problems now because of the increasingly globalized world that we that we live in and so only exponential type solutions can match the scale of the crisis that we face yeah i mean put another way i i hear that and put another way i think that since tech is now part of our fabric of course it has to be part of reinventing things as every generation has to do and 
because you know it's it's woven in it makes me you know your you know your thoughts on it revealing what existed before brings me back to thinking about how i felt about tech in the moment before the pandemic um before these awful injustices over race were revealed again and again and again and there was something about tech at that time that was sort of the good time if you will that really bothered me and I'm trying to articulate what it was. I think what really bothered me is I saw this kind of Alfred E. Newman, like what me worry attitude among successful people in tech, successful people in tech sort of saying, what are you complaining about? Like the world's getting better. Everything's good. You know, you have a fair shot. Anybody can learn to code from home. And we're obviously invest future of work investors since the first day we started our fund. We believe that anybody can learn things from home. But I also think that that's no excuse for the structural for accepting the structural injustice. And when I would rail on Twitter about some unfairness in the system, people would say like, oh, you're de-emphasizing people's agency. Anybody can lift themselves up. Now, generally those people were other white men. And so I try to listen to other voices, but I try to put a, 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 to identify why I thought tech was doing that. And I, I think I have a theory on it now, which is, which again, I want to try out on you, which is that and it ties to this moment in the pandemic where this moment, I'll do the moment in the pandemic and then the theory. The moment is tech is, I've been so gratified to see tech try to jump in and do something. I never would have guessed, you know, the social conscience of tech has been awakened it's in such a powerful way. But I feel a little bit like we were like field doctors who knew how to do operations, you know, out without much equipment. And now we've been called into this broader context of collaborating with governments, which we'd never done before and are inexperienced with, collaborating with philanthropic institutions. And it was sort of like the field medic got called into the hospital and all of a sudden doesn't know how to communicate with the team and what to do. And I think that that's a function, this is the theory of a tech paradigm where the very things that made tech successful, in fact, some of the things that I feel like Lean Startup underlined, can also in certain circumstances expressed in certain ways be our very limitations. And I'm thinking about things like tech's obsession with focus made us underinvest in getting to know other institutions. Tech's indifference to tradition makes us want to create new institutions versus collaborate with existing ones. You know, our prioritization on trust versus accepting indifference and trying to reconcile difference. Those are all things that in certain contexts make tech really work. And then in this context, mean we have a whole new language to learn. And in a way, I guess my way of looking at our long-term future is if tech is going to be part of the solution, we need to adapt our paradigm to being able to work with a broader set of partners in government. And it's a thing that when I see leaders, you know, like Mike Bloomberg or other folks for whom I've worked, um, you know, I was at News Corp before, that's a skill that leaders in other domains practice. And, um, and I think it's time for the leaders in tech to start to practice that too. And maybe this is our first chance. So I don't know, you've been seeing a lot of that collaboration. I'm just curious how that lands with you. Yeah, I, I look, I think that's very important. And I've been an advocate for that for a long time. Yeah. But I think we're living through like a, a, a massive legitimacy crisis. What kind? What do you mean? Like government legitimacy or something? Institutions? Yeah. Think about the following institutions. I mean, obviously, I care a lot about stock exchanges. Mm-hmm. Stock exchanges, schools, universities, labor unions, political parties, newspapers, hospitals. Uh, what, like, what do they all have in common? Like, I would say that in our lifetimes, trust in those institutions has collapsed. And like, there's a lot of situations, yeah. yeah, right. Like, I think a lot about hotels, 
versus Airbnb. Like hotels are easy to see. Like practically five minutes ago, we had to have hotels. They played a vital social function and we couldn't, you couldn't have travel. You couldn't have international business. Like there was no way to accomplish the goal of, uh, of travel and community without these physical buildings under central control with, you know, high efficiency, uh, mass production, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden you don't need them anymore. Right so now, we can accomplish everything we wanted to accomplish with hotels, but can be. I don't know if you don't need them, but certainly there's an alternative. Yeah, and I don't mean to say that they're bad or anything, but they used yeah. to be the only possibility to solve this problem. Now there's other ways, and we see that in education, in healthcare, and we've just seen it in in the most spectacular ways with political parties. Like so, centralized control, hoarding of expertise, gatekeeper, like this whole playbook about how you solve a certain civic problem now is not the only game in town. And yeah. so I think people in their bones have started to feel like, wait, why do we need the, like, why do we have to pay deference to these institutions? Why do we need them exactly? But they were also the way that, you know, previous generations, and it's interesting you mentioned tradition, we're talking about our grandparents, previous generations encoded certain civic values into those institutions. And when we disrupt them blithely, there's no guarantee that the new thing that takes its place will have those same civic values. We're watching it on TV every day now. That's if you right. replace journalism with Facebook, the disruption does happen. You make a lot of money, but what about the civic values have, you know, get lost? And so some people say, well, therefore, let's not disrupt anything. But I don't think that's going to work because the world is too complicated and chaotic for that. We're going to need a lot of new institutions. I, I actually think defend. I, I'm happy to defend techs impulse to build new institutions when the alternative requires like polynomially complex convenings and sclerotic institutions that move slowly. Like this is an exponential crisis. We got to go fast. Like, yeah. I mean, look, there's a reason why for me after working, like I ran a nonprofit, I worked in a government agency, I worked at a big media company. Like I've definitely done my tour of duty in different places and I've chosen to make my home in tech because in the main, I believe that this paradigm is the fastest way to change things for the better. I think that the challenge is we've seen it as a binary where we sort of oversimplified and said, let's, let's rip down all the old institutions. And I think about like Peter Thiel's speech at the Republican convention, you know, in favor of Trump, which was very much like I heard it as a burn the house down kind of a speech. Mm -hmm. And while I understand the frustration, I think we're not going to get to a better world if we just wipe the slate clean. Like we can't, you know, uh, board wipe everything that's happening and expect those values to persist. And right. so I think the skill is being selective. And I think that the course oversimplifications are on both sides. I mean, some of the work that we've done is really about building bridges between tech and other institutions. And I imagine long-term stock exchanges had to do a lot of the same. One of the oversimplifications I find that others outside of tech have is that when they hear tech, they assume it's all about the highest form of technology, the most advanced thing you can do. You know, they worry about the latest algorithm and some, you know, abusive power that can come from that. But the vast majority, and, and I'm not saying that's misplaced, but I think it's oversimplified because I see the vast majority of the change that is happening and, you know, the projects that you've helped facilitate in the COVID response are a part of this. They're not about high tech. They're about like good use of a CRUD website with a simple database that can be built quickly at high quality. And there's this more nuanced understanding of what it means to use technology that makes it part of everything and in the air. Um, you know, we got this question that came in about whether social activism is part of the solution. 
you know, when we think about tech, is social activism part of it? Of course it is, because social activism, like everything else, now includes technology. And we just have to stop these oversimplifications and develop a nuanced understanding of each other where a tech CEO is as comfortable talking to their elected representatives in a sophisticated way as they are talking to a senior engineering manager. That's kind of my, how we integrate the two ways of thinking, you know, and maybe by the way, that implies things about career paths. I look at organizations like Code for America. I look at communities, um, like we built a community with Stanford, um, their Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society called First Principles for people in tech who want to learn how to give philanthropically. Like It's time for cross-pollination between tech and other ways of doing things that will make us much savvier and able to have a much more constructive impact in the world. And uh, just to remind everybody, there will be a Q&A session uh, right following this. I'm curious, can I, can I just ask about that to pick a less charged, a less charged in the moment example for LTSE, for the long-term stock exchange, as you've had to build your path toward making it work, what are some of the constituencies that you didn't expect? I mean, you knew you were going to build a regulated institution, for example. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your own journey of getting to know some of those partner institutions and what that's been like. Oh, it's been super, super interesting. And you know, I've been working on, on LTSE for almost 10 years now, so it's been a very long journey of trying to understand um, the dynamics. And just so people know, like our theory of change with LTSE is threefold. On the one hand, I was talking about the need to, to rebuild the civic fabric of our society. So, so stock exchanges are one of those key institutions that I think could use a refresh. So we want to build a new one that promotes long-term thinking, the philosophy of long-term thinking for investors and for public companies. But that's not our sole goal. It's not just to build the best exchange possible. Our goal was also for the next generation of companies who we support to adopt this multi-stakeholder, more nuanced kind of leadership that we've been talking about of civic engagement and supporting uh, the society, like, you know, build, basically building products that are healthy for human beings in the societies they inhabit. But then the third, I think the thing that's more relevant here, the third theory of change is we have to show that this is possible. Mm. That you can build new institutions, baking within the system from the beginning, um, mm. like and engage with the existing infrastructure of our society. So to engage with politics and policymakers and regulators sure. and banks and, 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 and it's almost like, it feels a little bit like, so, and just for people who don't know, we got our SEC approval to operate the exchange last year. That's wild. First new stock exchange approved in how long? Do you know? For, for, for listings, really the, the first since the creation of NASDAQ in the late 60s. Wild. Um, and and it's, it's like an episode of Star Trek, you know, where they land on the, on the idyllic planet and then you realize that actually there's these like robots and machines that run the whole thing. And, and it's now been so long that everyone's forgotten how the infrastructure works. That, yeah. The journey has been like that where it's like, wait, totally. what, what's in this old dusty control room? Creaky muscles. What happens if you push this red button? Is it yeah. still work? And, and so like, I'll, I'll just tell you one story. Yeah. Talking to a lawyer. Uh, early in my journey here, where I was, where everyone was like, "This is impossible. You can't build a new stock exchange. Can't be done." You know, of course, have a dual. Wouldn't be worth doing unless people told you it was impossible. Of course, also all completely dumb ideas are also yeah. yeah it's like nonetheless, people don't realize how impossible and stupid. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In the early days, so I was like, "I've been through this before. It's all right." And so I remember, um, you know, people were, "You t- tell me why I'm building a stock exchange." It's almost like you tell them you're going to build a new moon, right? <laughs> okay, first of all, we already have one. Right. Do we need another one? That's not something that mortals do. You don't just, right, you know, sure, like, it just seems crazy. So, yeah, I've been talking to people constantly for years. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? And I finally meet this securities lawyer. And I say, how do you create a new stock exchange? He says, well, you fill out the Form 1 application. Yeah, there you go. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you're saying. He's like, Form, form one, 1, you heard it? And he's like, listen, you know how government forms are all numbered? I'm like, yeah. 
This, this is, is the first form. form number zero zero one. The I application love it. Securities Exchange. And listen, it's a long form. It's like two hundred pages long. Yeah, just like the, the United States Congress, application. There's a legislative. Like there's a there's a method to this, and it took us a long time to do it. I but love like, it. But I you followed the method. We've gotten this kind of learned helplessness about our institution. I think that's right. It's, that things can't be changed. That it's too difficult. Well, and to be fair, I mean, I think that you are a founder who has done some other stuff and then did this as your first go around. You know, I, I believe starting companies is a trade that can be learned as tradecraft. Mm-hmm. You you advance to building bigger and better things. And, you know, I think that the example of you doing that is really powerful. I'll just say one of the things I'm hopeful for for LTSE is I think about um, the leadership of the big tech companies. And in general, I love concentrated power. Like I like when founders are in control. We, in fact, like we're public about this on our website. We try to be as transparent as possible. We prefer not having too much governance control, like two class chairs. Great. Other VCs don't like me saying that, but um, I think it reaches a point where an institution has a social um consequence where concentrated power can be dangerous and you need checks and balances like anything else with enormous power. In the beginning, founders don't have much power. So um, one source you know, of check and balance should be um, shareholders. And that has not been effective to date um, for a bunch of reasons. And I hope LTSE can change that. The only thing we see effective right now, and I guess this is for those who are listening, is employees at tech companies organizing and being active on the issues they care about, that's the thing that bends those companies in this direction of, you know, I guess I just call it savvy engagement with institutions, thoughtful engagement, because I'm not a fan of burning everything down. And I'm not a fan of just respecting whatever existing institution existed. we got to use our brains and figure out this thing works. Let's support that. Let's fill out form 001. This other thing doesn't work. Let's burn it to the ground and start over. And um, that to me is the quest that all of tech is on right now. And I see LTSE and our response to COVID and fighting racism and, you know, whatever business we're going to fund next as all, you know, part of that quest of learning how to wield power effectively um, and, you know, signed up for it. And I'm, I'm happy, Eric, that you and I get to be collaborators in it. Well, and let us hope that we, op- we, we diversify and have a more inclusive spectrum of who gets to wield that power. Amen. Amen. After the initial conversation, Roy and I sourced some questions from the audience. Welcome back, everybody, to our Q&A session. Roy, are you still with me? I am here. Appreciate everybody for tuning in and happy to answer some questions. Looks like we got this first one here from Philip. I'm just going to read this because that was interesting. I'm a tech co-founder. I hate taxes, but isn't one of the main reasons for social erosion tax avoidance by tech? Do tech leaders need to pay up for past wrongs? Thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I got a lot of them on this one. Oh, man. Let's, first of all, tax avoidance is not a uniquely tech phenomenon by any means. And um, I wouldn't even say that tech is the primary inventor or pioneer of tax, uh, tax avoidance, tax erosion uh, by wealthy institutions and individuals. And it's certainly a mess. So, you know, I think this is something that's going to have to be solved through policy reform and international policy accords. But I also think, you know, I think Philip's on to something that, you know, if, if tech companies want to be seen as good, I think this is a kind of one of the contradictions of, of the new generation here is we all want to be seen as the good guys. There's a real emphasis on, on showing that you're multi-stakeholder, that you take care of your employees, that you build. So we want that, that imprimatur that tech used to have in its early days, that everything we do is good for society. But then we want to also be able to do this kind of double Dutch reverse, you know, 
shenanigans on the back end. And it's, it's, I think we've been able to get away with that because there's been relatively uncritical coverage of tech. And, and, you know, there was a long phase where tech was so new and interesting and fun, the kind of wonderkind of the, the boy genius and all that stuff. So as that, as that wears off, there's got to be a new maturity that says, hey, not only should we not do that stuff, we're going to have to start to learn how to make binding commitments and have a more principled response and say, look, this is the way that we're going to engage with policy. And I think a policy where you just, you try to take absolute maximum advantage of every loophole to get maximum advantage for yourself. Like that does pay off in the short term, but I think it has long-term uh, negative consequences. Yeah. I mean, personally, so I agree with that hundred um, percent. Having worked in government, I definitely see that there's lots of waste in government of things that are um, done that don't need to be done. One of the particular challenges I think is public sector unions because it's one of the few unions where you can literally vote yourself a job um, and pay for it. Somebody else pays for it. And um, not to say they don't play a constructive role sometimes, but there's waste and less should be spent given the value that we get. But I also think we can't sit there as an industry and say like, hey, look at our failing government institutions and advocate for lower taxes at the same time. Um, you know, there's something inconsistent about that. And I think this is a general form. So yes, I do think that people in tech, along with probably all wealthy people in the West, should be paying more. Um, one particular one that irks me is I went to a dinner um, from an advocacy organization for venture capitalists, if so, I believe such a thing exists, um, uh, called Tech After Trump. And I was like, great, we're going to learn about how we make a better country and what do we do. And the first 45 minutes of the dinner was about the political strategy for preserving the special tax treatment for venture capitalists where, you know, folks around the world may not know this, but yeah, but we, you know, venture capitalists pay taxes on their carry, on their returns, as if it were investments of their own money. And that just seems ludicrous to me. I mean, I give away money, my wife and I give away money you know, making up the difference. Um, but it is a, um, it's wild to me that that's what we see as sort of doing the right thing. And I think we got to stand and be counted if we, and, and by the way, when, you know, I went to just another little stories, I went to this big annual tech conference and somebody was there whining about how one of the senators, Orrin Hatch, when he was grilling Zuck, you know, didn't really know about what Facebook does. And, you know, I had two reactions to it. One is, the number of people in tech who don't really know what a senator does is also very high. So let's start always with learning ourselves. But the other is we're talking about these elected officials as though they're this like external force we have nothing to do with. Steve Jobs said it's more fun to be a pirate than to be in the Navy. Well, now the pirates are the admirals of the ships. Like if if there's a senator who's in power who you know, people don't like, like do something about it. And so I think it is part of this, you used the phrase earlier, this learned helplessness. And I think the attitude toward taxes is part of that learned helplessness too. Like let's, let's participate as citizens in our democracy and figure out where we want to guide things. Yeah. I, I mean, I talked to a lot of MBA uh, students and one of the pernicious ideas that's taught in MBA programs is on the one hand, you'll take a class where they basically say, look, uh, we're going to teach you the, the shareholder theory of, of the corporate purpose, which is to maximize shareholder returns. Yeah. So basically, you're not supposed to do anything. It's like basically like you're not responsible for social consequences or that's that's all about policy and politicians. So you just take whatever the rules of your society are as given, and then you optimize shareholder returns within that framework. And like that's, I think, a morally coherent argument. Not that I agree with it, but I, like you could make sense of Internally that. consistent. Except in the very next class, 
there'll be an entire class about how to effectively lobby to get policies changed to make them more favorable to shareholder to your shareholders. And if you take the argument that far to say, well, actually, your obligation is not just to maximize returns within the current framework, but to always make sure that you're advocating for a framework that benefits you. Now we're in a totally circular logic, self-defeat. Totally. Well put. It has absolutely no coherence at all. It's like, not only is it immoral, but it's just, it's incoherent. Doesn't, doesn't make yeah. sense. Like, well, then is there, are there, it, can, can we say that a corporate purpose involves any kind of commitments to anything? And of course, as soon as companies get challenged, like imagine that the government expropriates your property. You're like, whoa, 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 but the rule of law. It's like, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, if somebody else lobbied for that to maximize their shareholder returns, like, and you're like, no, 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 rule of law is a sacrosanct principle we have. It's like, okay. And like take all these free speech arguments about social media platforms. You, I don't know how they're all bogus. Um, ex- like try taking the trademark of one of those companies and abusing it online on their platform. Sure. Watch how fast it gets taken down. So right. somehow content moderation at scale is not so difficult for certain topics and not for others. Yeah. As soon as you make that mental change that like, okay, this isn't about some kind of black and white principle. Now we're talking about where to draw the line. All you're in that you're already on the slippery slope. You're sliding down it, my friend. Totally, so, uh, I totally agree. Better off as an in, if we if the tech industry could lead the way here and say, you know what, we're going to have a principled defense of a set of governance and moral principles that relate to the to the purpose of the corporation that we can like sleep easy at night saying, yeah, that we like we did the right thing. This makes sense. And I don't believe that it's not intellectually that hard. It's just people make an awful lot of money from the corruption and the status quo. So we gotta we gotta work on that. Yeah, totally. I mean, and you know, happy to take other questions, but um, in the in the Slido app. But while we're on that topic, I think that you know, there's a question about how do you change the industry so that it evolves in that direction. Yeah. And I've got a few views on that. Um, and because we've put some as part of trying to bridge between tech and other ways of thinking, we've definitely tried to do our part on this. I think to a first approximation changing the minds of call it the tech monarchs Mm -hmm. is roughly hopeless. I think their worldviews have developed. I think their worldviews have often co-developed with their company. Right. Right. Said to me the other day um, in one of these conversations that uh, all tech founders, all these tech CEOs, they're very religious. They all think that themselves are God. Yeah, uh, that's perfectly put. In fact, you remember the guy from uh, Uber who was the the Google self-driving car guy who literally filed to start a religion. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, like you can't make this shit up on Silicon Valley. You know, I don't watch it because I don't like watching a documentary about the world in which I live. Um, but but I think there are places where you can make change. And I think Stanford has been good here. They're running undergraduate courses on ethics um, for technologists, and they adapted that course we hosted in our office when we were still meeting in the office, now virtually, to do a version for practitioners in tech. Okay. And I think you have a community of sort of a next generation of tech leaders who want to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's less a matter, I think we tend to treat ethics incorrectly. We tend to treat ethics as like, if you're a good person, you'll be ethical. I actually think that I've met very few people in tech who are not good people. Um, in fact, it's struggled to think of any. Um, it's more that it's a skill that you have to practice to figure out how to bring your values to life, how to make the sacrifices, how to pay out of your pocketbook at the right point in time for the costs of making the right choices. And we just don't treat that as tradecraft, as part of startup and technology tradecraft. You know, I- I'm curious when YC does startup school, how much of it is about ethics versus, you know, um, growth hacking. And maybe there's some, I'm not trying to say there isn't any, I'm just, I'm genuinely curious. 
that's the move. I think the focus has been on maybe a little bit too much on personal ethics or people's personal attributes versus institutional well structures. So like well my favorite props, I don't know if people can see it. If it was not for the pandemic, we would, this is the kind of thing we used to use when we would go meet with uh, founders at an earlier stage who are like, well, how do I, how do I institutionalize my intentions? How do I actually figure out how to make my organization as a whole act in ethical ways? And if, if I'm making promises that I'm going to do right by my stakeholders or community, like why should anyone believe those promises? And the answer is, if you have put those promises, put those promises into your corporate governance, then they have some meaning because they will bind not just you, but your successors and your employees. And I, so I have in my hand, I have this deck of cards. We literally had a, 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 a this is like a 60 card deck. I don't know if you can see any of these. Each of these is an individual long-term governance idea that comes oh. at different stages can implement. And so like, if you actually break it down into the concrete a- actions and say, okay, you might be a very ethical person, but why should your board ever care? You know, one day your board may pressure you to do something wrong. Or like a classic thing is one day research will come out. Maybe you even commission the research yourself that shows that something about your product is unhealthy for your own customers. Is there anyone in your organization who has a fiduciary duty to care about that? Right. Or will they just, right. is it more, you know, it more profitable for them to sweep it under the rug? We know under standard governance what the answer to that question is. We've seen it over and over again. So then it's like, but, but what's the alternative? Yeah. Always like, what, what can I do? And it's like, well, I got, I got a deck of cards of things that you could do if you wanted to make that less likely to happen to you in the future. And I think that that gets at, you know, that, that of course, no company presumably is going to do all 60 of those things. Right, exactly. um, but, but you're saying like, here's a menu of choices and you can start to bring it to life. I used to be a real skeptic and still am to a degree about the kind of new corporate structures that build it in at the outset, you know, B corporations and public benefit corporations. Because I'm like, okay, where's the teeth in that? Like, what does it really do legally? It just prevents somebody from suing over this. And I always thought the shareholder value could even be made to make work. Because if you said, well, over what time scale am I solving? You know, if I'm solving over a long term, then I got to include all the stakeholders. But the place where I think I was wrong is I think there is enormous power to giving others license to enter the conversation. And so as part of this future work commission work, somebody challenged me in open and public uh, and said, like, you VCs should sign up people to a standard. And I'm like, I'm, I don't feel that powerful. I own 10% of a company. What do I do? And she convinced me that I was wrong because if we express a standard and say we expect companies to adhere to it, well, people can opt out of it. And maybe it doesn't have teeth but it gives us license to have the conversation later. And that's another reason why diversity is so important. I mean, one of the ideas I think is powerful is I do, I am a fan of the idea of genuine worker representation on company boards, yeah. um, because I think that is a vector for bringing in a new voice and not just a new background in terms of, you know, gender, race, age, you know, um, sexual orientation, whatever your, you know, religious belief. I mean, the discrimination in Silicon Valley against people who believe in God is, you know, it's quiet, but it's real. Um, you know, there is, uh, it's not just that, but bringing a new perspective, you deal that person in the room, even if they're one vote, they can speak up, they can shift the agenda. Um, they can create license to have the conversation. And so I think we're just going to get savvier about picking among your deck of cards for what works in each situation. Yeah. And I do think, look, you know, not to make us all about LTSE, but one of the reasons we embedded our governance philosophy in, as a stock exchange is because exchanges have regulatory enforcement power. Totally. Absolutely. I love that. What is the teeth? Companies that sign up to list an LTSE are making a binding commitment. And so it goes back to how do you make a promise 
how do you win the public's trust by making promises that they can believe? Believe that you'll, you'll stick to. I think that's a delicious question. And yeah, it's not just about LTSE. It's about you know private transactions like a VC funding somebody and lots of other things. And I guess what I'm trying to say writ large is I feel as an industry, we must figure this out to have the um, effective power that we could have, constructive power that we could have. We're just at the beginning, and I feel like I'm here for it, for being in the dialogue, you know, folks who respond to this, with you, Eric, which I've really, like I said, really learned from and appreciated. Right. And, you know, we, we only have the rest of our lives to figure it out. We might as well get started now. I appreciate that. You know, uh, I always like to end the podcast episodes asking guess this question. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stick to that. You know, it's funny. I listened to one episode to one episode and I heard the question. I was like, I should remember what that question is, but now I've completely forgotten. So go ahead. Well, it's, it's helpful. We put it right in the name of the show. Roy, how do we get out of the crisis? Yes. How do we get out of the crisis? Um, we vote and organize. I mean, I think there's lots of stuff we do in the short term, but in the U.S., which is mostly where my focus is, and to the extent I can speak for other places, we have got to take command over who our elected officials are, people who we know, if they feel so moved, have to run and do the thing, because that's the government is the first VC. It is the most powerful corporation, and unless we can work to set the rules of that game, in an ethical, constructive, just, anti-racist, tech-savvy, um, inclusive way, we're fucked. <laughs> Roy Bahat, thank you so much. All right, to be continued. Thank you, Eric. This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Rees. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Jacob Tender. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting is by Breaker. For more information on COVID-19 and ways you can help, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you have feedback or you're working on a project related to the pandemic, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S. Let's solve this together.